0: Yeah, excellent. Well, welcome everyone. My name is Kier Thielander. Uh, I've spent the last ten years in Gabon as a general surgeon, training with a program called PAX, Pan African Academy of Christian Surgeons, and now I've transitioned to the U.S., where I'm working as the Chief Medical Officer for PAX. Started that in July, so very new to that. Um, was asked to give this talk about surgical problems in PAX hospitals, and you know, PAX hospitals spread across. Africa. So really, it's surgical problems in Africa, but there are unique aspects to different regions. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning. I have essentially nine, nine cases from these different training sites, nine different training sites, and here's the ones we're going to look at: typhoid, lumbar hernia, esophageal cancer, uterine leiomyomas, lower extremity fractures, ATLS modifications. Because this is Africa, it looks different, Uh, as well as dealing with someone else's complications. Um, who's been? This is maybe an appropriate time to ask. I mean, then Goiter. Who's been to Africa? Who has spent more than a year? You got to raise your hand. You're from. Af- you are
1: African. <laughs> <laughs> who's spent
0: more than a year in Africa? Yes. More than a year. Ooh, not too many. Who has spent more than six months? Okay. Six weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Now we get everybody. So this is a collective kind of interdisciplinary or maybe unidisciplinary, for all surgeons, rounds, if you will. So we'll talk about these cases, but we're going to have five minutes a case, and I'm going to set a timer. At the end of our five minutes, we're going on to the next case. And in that five minutes, you're going to hear me talk a little bit, but I don't portray or purport to know everything about all of these things. I can give you my experience from Bongo Hospital and a little bit of input from some of the other PAC sites. Uh, but really, I think what we're going to gain most from is us all sharing the different ideas of how we've handled these things and the challenges you've seen. Hey, I ran into this. What did you do with this? So I want you to be talking, interactive, even though I'm droning on as a monologue. So we'll we'll start. We have five minutes. We're going to start with the first case from uh, Galmi, and we're going to call this typhoid. So I'm going to give a little intro to this. Um, This is from Wikipedia where you're going to see typhoid. You can see in the red, that's where you're going to see it, which is pretty much all of Africa, right? Although we didn't see it in Gabon, so if you go to Bongolo Hospital, you're not going to see typhoid perforations. Clinical manifestations pretty common: nausea, vomiting, high fevers. They tend to be cyclical. They may have a rash, this should be early on, and some diarrhea. When they present to you as the surgeon, or usually to the hospital, it's because they're really sick and they may have a perforation. So they're going to have an acute abdomen. Uh, they tend to be unstable. X-ray look like free air. So. Anybody want to have a comment about typhoid perforations or questions about it? I think looking at the pathogenesis is probably not that exciting. We don't really need to have a major scientific conference here, plus I'm not the one to give you that. So anybody have any, uh, any other comments or questions? Have you seen typhoid perforations? Okay. Who has seen it and had a challenge with it? Yeah, if you've seen it, it's been a challenge, right? They're not easy to handle. So the rest of you, who's heard about typhoid? All right, so you've heard about it. So those of you who have seen it, Steve, I'm going to call on you because I know you've seen it. Tell us just two seconds about it. Speak loudly because you don't have the microphone.
1: You can get it mistaken for appendicitis. Um, you get a perforation. If it's you got peritonitis, you're going to get a per, uh, perforation in the small intestine. Um, it's complicated because everybody comes in septic. And it's difficult to keep them alive, oxygenated, and enough fluid on board. So you're running the risk of renal failure or respiratory failure, and both are terminal events. Exactly. So a couple of things
0: to add to that. Just I will go back to the pathogenesis. It goes into the fires patches, and then it causes a perforation at those locations. So most of your perforations are in the terminal ileum. I assume everyone's going to know how to open the abdomen. You have a cute abdomen. You're going to operate. So what are you going to do when you get in there is really the question. So you're going to wash, you're going to wash, you're going to wash, and you're going to wash, and then you're going to wash some more. So the solution to pollution is? Pollution. Dilution. Thank you very much. Everybody knows that, right? And you may plan a second look because sometimes these perforations aren't evident at the first look. They, then you will say, well, we're going to come back. This looks really bad, and we're going to come back in two days. And my encouragement to you is what often people do, especially people who are visiting, We're going to come back in two days, but in two days, they look so good. I don't think we should take them to the operating room. You better have some really good reasons to not do the second look you planned. Your best assessment is when you were in the operating room that first time, not two days later when you think the patient looks good, because on day three or four, they're going to look bad again when they perforate again. So you have to stay with your original plan if you're going to do a second look. Do you do a primary repair or do you do a, let's see, I think I have something here. Oh. Yeah. Uh, do you do a primary repair or do you do a resection? A um, couple of options on that. If you have a lot of perforations and they're close, resect. And then doing anastomosis, that's always risky, right? Because they're terminal ileum. You can't resect. Then you end up doing a right hemicolectomy, which is a lot bigger operation. Uh, ileal are not would not be recommended. That will be your temptation. Oh, we're just going to do this. The colon looks fine. Well, these are unstable patients. They don't have a lot of uh, good vascular situation. Hemodynamic stability is not there. And the, the blood flow to that, the, the distal cecum or the, the right colon there is not going to be adequate. You need to do a right hemicolectomy. So if you think you have to do a resection and it's distal, you need to do a right, a right hemicolectomy. Okay? And, and do an anastomosis. If you have to do an ileostomy, that should be your last line of defense. I- ileostomies in Africa are not handled well. It's very difficult to manage them. You can do it, but you need to be ready to handle that, and will they come back for another operation? So take-home points. If you plan a second look, do it. Don't change your mind later, even if the patient looks good. Wash, 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 and then wash some more. If you have multiple perforations, don't be afraid to resect because that's going to do better than trying to repair in a kind of, uh, I think the tissue might hold the suture. If you think it might, it probably won't. These people are generally malnourished and have come late in their septic. So any comments? Anybody else? We had one comment from Steve. Not a whole lot of experience in the room, but other comments about typhoid. Anybody, something I've missed who's been there? Jean-Claude, do you have anything to say? Jean-Claude's one of my residents from five years at Bangalow, and uh, he finished five years ago. So now he's got five years of experience uh, on his own. Let's see if our five minutes are up. We have five seconds. So we'll go on to the next topic. So the next one, road traffic accidents. Uh, probably the most common cause of death in Africa. Hey, look, it worked. Uh, who's who's seen a, a road traffic accident or some sort of trauma? Who's seen it in Africa? Okay. Do they have a golden hour or a golden what? What do you have there? Someone's laughing. 40, yes. 72. 48, 72 hours. So the theme is they come late. Okay? When you look at trauma, we have ABCs, right? A, B, C, D, E. You never see the A. They're already dead. They didn't make it to you. I don't say that because I like people to be dead, and I don't mean to be crass, but that's the reality. They do not make it to you. And almost all of the Bs, they don't make it to you either. So when someone gets to your hospital, and if you're visiting, oh, we need to look at airway breathing. They've probably already done that one. They're, they've made it through the airway and breathing problems because they made it to your hospital. So focus on the, the third one, and I know this breaks all the rules of ATLS, right? But focus on the third one of circulation. That's where they're going to compensate well, right? Who are the people that compensate well? Athletes, young children, people that die later, older people, right? Those are the people that we have problems with, and we say, oh, we didn't recognize that their circulation was a problem. The average Gabonese person that I saw in Bangalo was pretty healthy. They maybe weren't an athlete, but they looked better ripped than most athletes that I know in terms of their muscles. So they follow that pattern. They look good, and then boom, they die. So they may look good when you see them first in the, in the emergency room, but circulation is the one that you're going to miss, that's, or that's the one that they're going to present with that's a problem. Often there's bleeding that is not quantified well, or at least it, it goes in one of two phrases. It's either, oh, they bled to death, or, oh, it wasn't that much blood. And it's never one of those. It's always somewhere in between. It's always somewhere in between. So look at circulation first. And what are you going to assess on that? It's the same stuff, right? People are people. The human body is the human body. What's their level of consciousness? Are they able to respond to you? Are you talking with them? This isn't to assess their airway and breathing. This is to assess their level of consciousness. When you talk with them, if you're in a you know, foreign language, at least know the greeting. Is it bonjour? Is it... Anisogoma, whatever it is that you say when you greet someone in that place that you're visiting or that you've been to, at least know how to do that, and then they should respond to you. If they don't respond or they kind of halfway roll their eyes. Circulation is the issue. It could be a head injury, but circulation is the issue that you can do something about. You probably won't have a CT scanner to look at the head injury, right? There are very few places that you're going to go on the continent of Africa that are mission hospitals that have a CT scanner. Some do. Look at their skin color. How do you do that with someone who's got black skin? What are you going to look at? Anybody know? Conjunctiva.
1: Conjunctiva.
0: Nail beds, right? So it's not exactly their skin, but it's this, the equivalent of. So look at those things. Have they lost a lot of blood? And what's their pulse rate and the character of their heart rate? Those are, those are the important things. And the long term, you're going to look at urine output. But that's not what you're going to look at in the first time, right? You don't put a Foley catheter and say, oh, they have 400 cc's of urine. This is great. I was probably there when they had the accident. So it doesn't, it doesn't help to, to assess that. So you put the catheter in so you can get rid of that urine and then look at it from there. So on the circulation side, who's heard the four on the floor? Anybody know that one? There's four compartments, and then the floor, those are the places that you can bleed out. So you can bleed outside. You can bleed in your chest. You can bleed in your abdomen. You can bleed in the pelvis. You can bleed in your femurs. So look at those things when you're looking at circulation. Those are the aspects to look at. What is one of the best... Uh, so control it if you see any obvious signs of hemorrhage control them uh, they, they, we, it wasn't infrequent for people to come with a tourniquet on how do you control bleeding does anybody know the answer to this it's pretty simple you put a glove on most, most mission hospitals have gloves and you take your two fingers and you put it on what's bleeding it's not more complicated than that if it's in the abdomen the only way to do that is to make a laparotomy right It's in the chest. You need to do a thoracotomy. But your two fingers and a glove is all you need. You don't need a tourniquet. You don't need fancy stuff. Just put a glove on. Put your two fingers there. What is another pitfall is, I don't know if you're a nurse or a doctor, but I'm going to pull you in. So you, you pull the nurse say, hey, put your hand here. And then you go do something else. Inevitably, you come back 30 seconds later. Their hand is no longer on the wound. There's blood everywhere. Maybe the tourniquet's even back on. And you think, what happened here? So you need to be careful about who you ask to do what in terms of controlling hemorrhage in a trauma situation. Okay? And a lot of these are lower extremity trauma, which we're going to talk about later. Anybody else have any other comments about trauma? I have one other aspect that you may not think about, although it's more prominent here. Anyone? Steve? Anybody? Ultrasound. So do an ultrasound. You may say, "I've I've never done an ultrasound before. It's all right. You'll figure out what it looks like. You can kind of see fluid, and if you see it, they need it. And and on your on your uh, abdominal ultrasound, if you see fluid, take them to the operating room. Okay, take them to the operating room. There's no way that they can have a a manageable amount of fluid in their abdomen from a trauma that you can observe in your environment wherever you're going to be. I don't know any mission hospitals that are routinely doing splenic uh, observation for splenic injuries. Uh, they, They just aren't doing it. So you need to take them to the operating room. And then remember, when you go to the operating room, what are the capabilities of your anesthetic staff? It's not the same. You can't count on it like you would here in the U.S. You can't say, oh, I know that they're going to be able to manage this. You're going to likely be engaged with managing the anesthesia because it's not just about the airway. It's about the hypotension and the volume, and it's about the anesthetic that you're actually giving. So... We'll go on to the next one. This is going to be a little shorter talk. Uh, it's lumbar hernia. Who's seen a lumbar hernia in this room? I know you have. You have. You have. Just one. Was it post-incisional or de novo? De novo. Pretty rare. Uh, Gabon happens to be a place where we see a lot of them. It's unusual, so I thought that we would talk about that from Mongolo's perspective. Uh, we don't really know what the cause of it is. There's got to be some genetic component, but it's also environmental. There's a lot of hard work that happens with these guys. They, they're out in the fields, and it's mostly men. Uh, it's the majority have been men. It's a, a flank swelling. I have a picture here. Uh, does that show up? Can you guys see this at all? So this is, this is what it looks like. It's not a lipoma. Okay? And if you were here in the U.S., you would say this is a lipoma, and it probably would be. But if you're in Gabon at Bangalow Hospital, it's a lumbar hernia. It's not a lipoma. Okay, that's that's just what you're going to see. There's two triangles. Remember, there's Grenfell and Petit. But I don't know how we say it in English anymore. But in French, we say Petit. Uh, and the majority of the ones that I saw were in the the Petit triangle. Um, there can't be large enough because people again come late, just like they do in trauma. They come three to four days late. With this, they may come three, four, or five years or a decade late. And by that time, half their abdominal contents are sitting out on their on their flank. It's pretty. Pretty impressive, and you have to think about things like loss of domain. You can't just shove it all back in and shove a mesh on there and say they're good. You're going to have respiratory problems potentially. You can do these under spinal, and if you do it under a spinal, that is helpful because if they start to have breathing trouble when you've shoved everything back in, then then you'll know that, that you can't really quite do that. You need to relax that a little bit and either loosen your mesh or whatever you need to do. Um they tend to be retroperitoneal aspects that are in there, so you're going to see fat for the most part. Uh, you can have the, the left or right colon can be actually in to this uh, lumbar hernia sac, and so you have to be aware of that. Don't just go dissecting the tissue out. You may end up having stool. Uh, that's not a good thing to have stool in the wound because that it some of your options in terms of repair. Uh, any other comments, you guys who have seen these before who have done this?
1: Remember that you may, may have a piece
0: of bowel and, and have You can have an incarcerated there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there, don't, someone who comes in with a bowel obstruction, we're used to looking for hernias as a potential source of that, or, or often what we say here, it, it wasn't true in Gabon, although I know it's true in other places, is that it's adhesions, right? It's all post-op. That was the exception where we were in Bangalore. The the overwhelming cause of almost every bowel obstruction was a hernia, whether it was inguinal or whether it was lumbar or whether it was uh, unusual ones uh, as well. We've we've seen them in all kinds of different ways. So think of hernia, and when you think of hernia as a cause of bowel obstruction, you have to look at the flanks, not just the inguinal region and incisional areas. Yes, Steve?
1: Don't forget, you need mesh in order to do it, so if your hospital doesn't have mesh people who brought the mosquito nets just thank them for the donation for the surgical net and use the soda and it works really well. Um, Sterilizing it, we usually just drop formaldehyde tablets in a tuna can at the bottom of a a bucket or a chest freezer. 24 hours, everything's sterile in the container. Don't lean over and get it out. Use a stick or something to pull it out because it's full of deadly gas. Right. Then you'll have the respiratory problems that yeah, you didn't want have.
0: Problems, you so. can also sterilize, autoclave that mesh. You can. You can, it's mosquito netting. Make sure it's not impregnated with, uh, what do they use? Insecticide, yeah, yeah of some sort. That, that may be a problem. I, honestly, it's probably not that big of a deal, but just don't do it. So be, you be better off. And we've done that. We did that in Longolo when we needed to do it. Any other comments about lumbar hernias? Any questions? is new for everybody? I haven't seen that before? Alright, let's move on to our next one. So this is Arusha Lutheran Medical Center and you'll see part of this is me promoting PACS, right? These are, you get to see a lot where our PACS training sites are. Uh, so in Arusha, although I'm not 100% sure this is what they see all the time, but we're going to talk about someone else's complications. Who's been, you've all been, almost everybody here has been to Africa, is that right? To Mission Hospital? Who's been to Mission Hospital in Africa? Yeah, who has seen someone else's from the the region complication? Yeah, a few people. It's a lot of what you see. Why is that? If you look at the statistics, there are very few trained surgeons in many areas of Africa. You may say there's one for, in Jean-Claude's area, it's one for two million people. He's the one trained surgeon. How many people are doing surgery in your area? 20, 30, 40? A lot. A lot of people are doing surgery, but none of them are trained to do surgery. Most of them are physicians, but some of them are nurses. Some of them are other. They're not physicians or nurses. So you can imagine the kinds of complications you might see. right? There's all kinds of things. So these are the two things you need to keep in mind. We often think they had a complication because they knew what they were treating. Not always, Sometimes the complication is unrelated to their original disease process that they had. So if you get a good history from them, which is a challenge, but if you can, you may or may not get a transfer note from a hospital. But you get a good history, and always ask one more question. Even if you think you have it figured out, ask one more question. And the best option I can suggest to you is, don't be the one to ask that but ask somebody else on your team who lives in that area to ask that final question because they inevitably will know something that you don't know. Especially if you're a visitor for 2 weeks or a couple of months, the cultural things and aspects, the way people interact and communicate, you're not going to understand that. But the person that you're working with is going to trust you and know that you want to help the patient, and so they're going to know I want to get the right answer for them. What what else do you think we should ask? What am I missing? And then they'll ask something, and suddenly a light bulb will go on. Oh, wow, I would have done this. But now that I know the real truth, I'll do this instead. So don't assume that the original disease was, was treated correctly. Maybe you're still seeing the effects of the original disease. We had a guy who came in with a hernia repair, but they didn't actually do a hernia repair. They just had an incarcerated hernia. They opened something, the skin. They shoved everything in and put some big sutures on They didn't actually release the incarceration. So he still had an incarcerated hernia that had had an operation, and they had actually done nothing. Now, it doesn't happen every day, but it will likely happen if you spend any significant time in a mission hospital in Africa. You're going to see someone else's complication. Don't assume that the original disease has actually been taken care of, and this is only a complication. A lot of people, as I said before, a lot of people are doing surgery. Not many of those people are trained to do surgery. Uh, very common things that we would see in terms of, well, let me, let me add this, a couple other tips. On the kid's side, every child has a history of trauma. Every mass that they come to you with, they will tell you, oh, they fell and they landed on their leg. Well, this is probably not how they got an osteosarcoma, but that is the history that you're given. It's always some sort of trauma. The questions to ask are, did you see the child fall? Uh, no. So how do you know that the kid fell? Well... So-and-so said that so-and-so said that he saw that. Okay, so you weren't actually there. No, I wasn't there. So do you know that the child fell? Well, he falls all the time. Yes, kids fall. So there's, there's always that historical aspect that you, is going to be a challenge to get clear, especially when you're looking at other people's complications. So did they witness it or did they not? Um, don't assume that their initial diagnosis was correct either. So if they come to you and say, oh, they told me I had this at the other hospital, You need to start from step one. Don't trust anyone. Okay. What is is that? That's from I don't know. It's from a movie or something, probably. Trust no one. What is that from? (coughs) Somebody. No, I don't know. So don't assume the initial diagnosis was right. Don't assume their treatment was correct either. So I don't know. Does this show up? Can you guys see this? So I'll tell you specifically about this guy. He came to came to and he was having trouble with his arm. And he'd fallen about eight months earlier and had broken his humerus and. I said, so when, when did this break again? What, what happened? He just looked at me. I said, no, when, when did? So it was after they did surgery. They put in this plate and everything, and, and then it looked good. And then when did it, like, break? And now it's kind of you know, protruding out, not through the skin, but tenting the skin. He just kept looking at me, and I said, so, okay, let's go back. You, you had this kind of sticking out, yeah. Then you went to surgery, yeah. And then after surgery, what did it look like? It looked like this, doctor. So they actually hadn't, they, had, they plated this, and I don't know, maybe in the time between when he was out of surgery before he woke up, it's hard to understand, but clearly they didn't plate this correctly. You don't put plates floating in the sky like that, and you certainly can reduce that. So don't make the assumption that they actually did what was intended to be done, and if they, or that the patient is going to be able to clearly communicate that to you. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, so always go back, way back, and ask more questions than you think you need to ask. Persevere through that difficulty of asking questions. So some other common injuries that you might see. Ureteral injuries would be pretty common. So if you have not gone and you're planning to go, brush up on what do you do with ureteral injuries and at what level, because that's a pretty common injury to see. Uh, both from hysterectomies, because they're very common, as well as from C-sections. You can can see a lot of urethral injuries, and know how you want to handle them. We can't go through all the details, because you'll need to read an atlas and and look through an anatomy book and know exactly what you need to do and how to repair that. But know that you're going to probably see a urethral injury. They're pretty common. Um, Unrecognized anapotomy is another pretty common thing that you'll see. Uh, people will go in, they'll operate, and they, did, they just didn't see that they had put a hole in the bowel. So people will come leaking stool or succus through their wound, and you may have a, well, how did this happen? And it may have just happened at the operation. So don't hesitate to question not only yourself, that's why we do M&M, right, but also to question what other people have done. It's not a, an affront to them as an individual. You just want to help the patient. You have to be right and correct about it and diligent and appropriate in the way that you have the conversation. You don't need to throw them, oh, they did terrible things at that other hospital. It's not going to help anybody. It doesn't help that culture of trust or lack thereof. So you want to be reasonable and say, yeah, we're going to take care of you. We're going to figure this out. We're going to do the best we can. And then just leave it at that. Uh, If they've taken antibiotics, don't assume that they were given the appropriate antibiotic, nor assume that they were given the appropriate dosages. I've seen uh, penicillins given once a day often amoxicillin once a day, not, and it wasn't for prophylaxis. So it just just don't make those assumptions. Don't assume that it was done correctly. All right, so we'll move on here and talk about goiter. Who's seen a, who's seen a big thyroid before? A lot of people haven't seen one. Not just in Africa, but anywhere. Who's seen a, a big thyroid? Okay, maybe a few more people. Yeah, so we've seen a, big, a bigger thyroid. A couple of things about thyroid disease um, in Africa. Remember that a lot of these don't assume it's a cancer, right? Because if it's a cancer, that usually if they present late, they're going to have other symptoms. If they've had it for 10 years, it's probably not cancer. Having said that, papillary cancer is slow growing, so it can be, but it's unusual that it is. What is the standard? What would be the standard thing to do in the U.S. here if you have somebody who comes in with a thyroid mass? You're going to do a physical exam, maybe an ultrasound, and a FNA. So, who's been to a mission hospital that can do FNAs? I've not. Uh, I think there probably are a few out there, but the majority of you, if you go to a place, you're going to be somewhere that they can't do an FNA. So, you have to change your approach and the way you're going to look at things. You have to, you have to make a, more judgments and take that risk of making a judgment that you might be wrong because you don't have all the ancillary services to confirm what you want to confirm. That's just how the reality is in these remote places in Africa. So one of them is you can't do an FNA, but you can do an ultrasound in most of these places. It's the best tool you can have. So if you have an opportunity to, to see a few thyroid ultrasounds before you go on this trip, do it. Okay? Either do them yourself, if you can, uh, or on yourself. I guess you could do that, too. Uh, but do them or at least look online to see what does a normal thyroid look like? What does a thyroid mask look like? What does a multinodular goiter look like on an ultrasound so that you don't scare yourself out of doing something that you actually could do to help a patient? So look at those things based on an ultrasound. Uh, obviously, you're gonna do your typical evaluation. So we rely a lot on clinical findings for things such as hyperthyroidism. So you may be in a place where you can't get a TSH You can't get a T3. You can't get a T4. They have a goiter. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm sorry. I can't help you go home. That's what the last 20 people they saw told them as well. That's not probably going to do much for them. Okay? So you need to be versed at getting the clinical history. They've had a goiter for eight years, and they have no signs of hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. Do they have arrhythmia? Do they have palpitations? Do they have exophthalmos? That's going to be a sign, right? Do they have menstrual irregularities? Obviously, that's for women, not men. Uh, did, how long has this swelling been there? How long have they had this problem? If it's been a year, okay, maybe there's some question. If it's been five, six, seven years, they have no signs or symptoms of hyperthyroidism, it's probably not a functioning uh, mass. Do they have compressive symptoms? Is this an aesthetic operation? Right At this point, if they have no systemic symptoms and they have no symptoms of compression, then you're doing the operation to make them look better. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a wrong operation, but know ahead of time that's what you're doing. It's easy to go to a place and see this big mass and think, wow, we need to take that out. It may or may not be the right answer for that patient. Have a discussion. There are some places, not very many, but there are some places where having that big mass... That's a sign that that's just what everybody in our village has. We all have that. So they don't maybe understand why. So think about why you're doing the operation. Again, ultrasound, FNA. If you can do the thyroid hormone studies, thyroid function tests, TSH, do them. But if it's going to take, so I give the, the example I could say to a patient, can you get, go get a TSH? They may say, yes. I can go to, in our case, it was Mila and do that. And they go do it, and they come back a month later. And by that time, if you're the visitor, you're gone. And the patient's now there with the results. that actually doesn't do anything because there's not a surgeon there to actually help them anymore. Okay, so you have to think practically about how long is it going to take to get these studies and other things, and how much do you really need these studies to be done? How long do we go? We're here until anybody know what time. 10.20? Okay, so we have still have half hour. Yeah, we're going fast. Okay, um, so talk about the thyroid operation itself. Uh, those of you who's done a, who's done a thyroidectomy or a lobectomy before, not too many. Who've seen one? No, you haven't seen one either. So maybe this isn't going to be extremely helpful for you, but. Uh, if you go and you see someone who had one, these are the things you're going to need to think about. How are you going to treat this patient? Okay. So often what we do as surgeons, we've looked at subtotal thyroidectomy, total thyroidectomy, or lobectomy. So what you need to understand is, if they had a total thyroidectomy, obviously they need thyroid hormone replacement. Goes without saying. If they've had a subtotal thyroidectomy, so a subtotal thyroidectomy, they leave, we leave... 20, 30, maybe 40 grams of thyroid tissue that may function for how long? Does anybody have an idea? Since you guys don't do thyroid surgery, maybe a month, two months, six months, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years, but certainly not longer than that. So the subtotal thyroidectomy that you're doing, that patient will need thyroid hormone replacement at some point in their life unless they die within a couple of years. So you have to keep that in mind when you're, if you're seeing a patient or if you're doing the operation, that doing that subtotal thyroidectomy might make you feel good that day and we left a little thyroid tissue, but what are, you, what are you giving for that patient for the next two, three, or four years, what's gonna happen? And if it was just an aesthetic operation, are you really benefiting them in the whole grand scheme of life to do that subtotal thyroidectomy to relegate them to having to take thyroid hormone for the rest of their life in the next couple of years? So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Even a lobectomy at 10 or 15 years has a chance of becoming hypothyroid. Not to the same extent, but they still have that chance. So you have to keep these things in mind. What is the availability of thyroid hormone replacement at the place that you're going? Everyone will tell you, oh, yeah, I can do that, doctor. Okay. How about you ask the staff at the hospital that you're visiting? What can we get? What can patients reasonably do? Are they going to be able to pay for it, and are they actually going to take it every day? It's not uncommon that we heard the, the answer to this question. Do you have high blood pressure? Yes, I had high blood pressure high blood pressure. I took the medicine, and now I'm fine. <laughs> so are you taking the medicine now? Oh, no, it finished like two months ago. I took it for two weeks. So that concept of high blood pressure being treated like an infection with an antibiotic is kind of how it looks, at least in our situation of Angola, that's how it looked. Probably a lot of Africa is that way. I would assume it was that way in Cameroon, DRC, you see the same thing. So you have to be aware that they will tell you often, the patient will tell you, because they want to please you and make you happy, that they can do it. The reality is they may not be able to do it. Uh, it's not every case that they can't, but ask those questions. As I said earlier, always ask one more question. When you think you're done, think of one more question to ask to get to the real root of what's going on. And just like everything, right, it's the question that the patient asks you when you're walking out of the room that is why they came, right? That happens in Africa, too. When you're done, you've seen the patient, you've done your physical exam, you think you got the answer, Doctor, I just have one more question. That's usually why they came. The typical one for us was... um, I'm having trouble getting pregnant. That was always the last question. It's not why they said they came. I'm having pelvic pain or whatever. But that was always the the question that came at the end. Uh, Don't forget about calcium levels. Uh, That is is a question. Uh, If you've done a total thyroidectomy, can you get calciums or not? It doesn't mean that you won't do it, but you have to be aware that you don't have it when you're going to do the operation. You may take take different precautions if you know you can't get calcium levels post-op. Or if you don't have calcium replacement, you you would approach things in a different manner. So these are things you need to think about that we take for granted here because, well, everybody can do that. won't necessarily be the case where you're headed. All
1: right, let's
0: move on and talk about esophageal cancer. Who's seen an esophageal cancer case? It's East Africa, probably the most common, uh, in fact, throughout the world, the largest case volume of esophageal cancer uh, published study that I know of was from Tenley Hospital. They see a ton of esophageal cancer. Don't really know why. Uh, is it related to some of the nuts or things that they chew or tea that they drink? No one's really been able to prove all of that. As far as I know, unless someone has some updated information, hasn't been proven. But the reality is they have it. You see a lot of it. It tends to be in the 50-year-old range, although they do see it in very young people as well, teenagers. It's really sad. Ninety percent of them are squamous cell. Uh, only 10% are adeno. In the US, that has shifted, right, originally, or in the distant past 20 years ago, it was more squamous. Now we're having a, a real bump in adenocarcinomas of the esophagus. Is it reflux? Is it diet? Again, a lot of questions even on the US side. How are they going to present? Pretty typical dysphagia. They're going to have weight loss, uh, and they usually present late. Even here, people present late. How much more so in Africa, where you're going to say, I don't know if I have the money to see the doctor? So you're going to come when it's really bad. So what are you going to do? How are you going to handle that patient? Um, The first thing that you're going to need to do is talk about spiritual issues with them, right? This is clearly not a great prognosis. I should back up. You should be doing that with all the patients that you see, no matter what their presentation is. Is it typhoid? Is it trauma? Whatever it is, they all need to hear about Jesus. So, esophageal cancer. Are you going to do a resection? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. If you're the visiting physician and you see a patient with esophageal cancer, one thing you don't want to do is do a procedure that will commit the long-term physician when he or she comes back two weeks later to not be able to do what they would have done. Okay? So be thinking about even you, even though you may not be comfortable doing it, we know esophageal cancer is not an emergency. This isn't hemorrhage. This isn't shock. They're not dying on the table. It's not an emergency. So think hard about what you're going to do and what that will commit you to to the future or someone else to in the future with that patient. So consider that. As you're working them up, would you want to do a resection? Are you comfortable doing that? Or are you not? Can you do an ultrasound of the abdomen just to see if there's metastasis? That will certainly change what you're going to do. They've got METs already that you can identify in an ultrasound. What kind of palliation are you going to do for them? Because with METs that you see on an ultrasound, No one's going to do a resection on that. That's that's only palliation at that point. So what can you do for palliation? Can you get a swallow study? You may or may not be able to get a swallow study. Probably if they see a lot of esophageal cancer, you can get a swallow study. So go ahead and do that. If the patient can't afford it, maybe you just jump over that and go straight to an EGD. And, And you can get a biopsy, and you can visualize and see the extent of the tumor. I don't know of any mission hospital that has endoscopic ultrasound. So I don't think they're going to be able to assess assess the depth of tumor invasion. There are a few that have CT scans. And this is a situation where you may say to the patient, if they can afford it, we're going to send you to get a CT scan, and you come back when you get the CT scan. Because, again, it's not an emergency. They don't have to have the CT on your site. But assure them that there is something you can do to help them. Because sometimes when you send them away, they think that you just don't want to take care of them, and they don't come back. And so when you send them away, make sure that they understand that they should come back with the results and the scan so that you can look at the scan and you can make an assessment, or you've got them set up for the long term, or who's coming back in two weeks They can look at the scan and make their own assessment. So what are your treatment options? If you decide that they have metastatic disease and there's nothing you can do about it, you can do a G-tube. They can get some feeding that way. Uh, at least that it palliates the hunger pains. Uh, It will allow them to maybe live a little bit better life for a short period of time. And it's something that you can do to help them. They will most likely be happy that you've done something if you have an appropriate discussion. And this depends on your setting. Are people managing G-tubes? Is it something known in the community? Because if it's not known in the community, then you shouldn't probably be the first one to do it. That make sense? you're not going to bring all of a sudden the brilliance from the West and do this for the first time, it probably isn't going to be handled well. There's a lot of things that need to be done to prepare for something like managing a G-tube or a colostomy or an ileostomy that a lot of cultures don't quite understand all of those details yet. And there's some stigma about those things. So ask those questions and make sure that you, again, ask that one more question. Uh, Some places like at Tenwick, they do have stenting as an option. Uh, Another aspect that I'll bring out for you as mostly visitors, just because you can doesn't mean you should or that they can. Just because you can do the resection of the esophagus doesn't mean that the post-op recovery that you need is there. Now, that has to be balanced. They're not going to have an ICU, most likely, like you would have here in the States. Maybe they do esophagectomies all the time. Okay, that's a situation where you might consider it. But if they've never seen an esophagectomy at that institution you probably shouldn't be the first one to do it because it requires so much post-operative care. So you have to balance this. When we're talking about surgical diseases, do you do it just because you can? What is the post-op going to look like? If it requires a lot of intensive care, are you willing to do it? Because maybe no one else can or knows. It's not that they're not intelligent enough. They've just never seen it and never been taught. Or is it something that doesn't require much in terms, or requires a lot in the procedure, but doesn't require much postoperatively? That's someone that, that you would say, yeah, we can do this even though they've never done it before. What kind of ICU care? Um, consider a soft So we'll move on here. Open fractures, lower extremity. Who's seen one of these? If you've been to Africa, I think you've probably seen one. Um, what's the most common cause of these? Motorbikes, right? A lot of motorbikes, no helmets, <coughs> and in Gabon we didn't see a lot of head injury because their motorbikes don't go very fast. But we saw a lot, and we saw a fair number of lower extremity fractures. So you can still see these. This was a case that we saw. This wasn't a, a motorbike. This lady got ran over by a car or what? <coughs>
1: Excuse
0: me. They don't come early. They tend to come late. So an open fracture. This one came 24 hours after, the, after her injury. Um, she was only two and a half hours away. I don't know why it took 24 hours. She was in a hospital, and she came to us with dirt and grit and everything still in the wound, even though she'd been in a hospital for 24 hours. So don't make assumptions that the care that you would expect would have been provided was provided. Open fractures tend to come late. What are you going to do with them if they're treated or untreated? So a splint, splint them for pain, wash them. Wash them, wash them, and wash them. And don't say, oh, well, we don't have a pulse of act, those fancy things that they use in the U.S. Fortunately, about six months ago or maybe a year ago, they demonstrated that those actually cause more tissue damage than they do in terms of healing. It's better to wash with high volumes, low pressure, than these high-pressure... Who's been? Who's seen one of those machines? Yeah, they seem really fancy and like, this is going to be great. And it looks really good, but at the cellular level... It causes, I would suspect, it's just like, you know, how's your leg going to feel after you've done this? Somebody just hitting on you, it's going to get more swelling and edema. So it makes sense that it probably doesn't promote healing, although it does look nice. But wash with high volume. Anything that you can see that's gross, get it out of there. If it's dead, it needs to come out. Okay, those are minimums. If it looks bad, it comes out. If it's dead, it comes out. And then you have to deal with the wound and what you're going to do. You have to do the debridement. And if there's bone exposed, try to get it covered some way. Intention is not the answer. What's going to happen over the next 24 to 36 hours after this? you've looked at this wound and tried to manipulate and play with it? It's going to... Yeah, it may pus out, or it's going to swell. Right? It's going to swell. So that, that skin that you thought, oh, well, just pull a little tighter suture and make it close, because the bone has to be covered, it's going to tear through, it's going to get edematous, then you're going to have necrotic skin. So... It's a real balance. It takes a judgment call. Sometimes less is more. Don't just close it because you can, but you do need to get bone covered and keep it moist. Uh, if you have the option of a vac dressing, although I didn't put that on here, that's a great option. If you can do vac, vac dressing or create some sort of vac dressing, it'll keep your wound moist, it'll keep the bone moist, and it gives you, buys you some time to think and reflect what am I going to do with this wound? Maybe you can email somebody that can, and I would encourage you to do that. Just because you feel like you're on an island, uh, you're not really on an island like you feel like you are, especially if you have internet access. There's tons of people that would be willing to give you some input and advice, um, and you take it for what it's worth. So wash, 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 debride what you have to debride, and then close it if you can. Um, Stabilize the wound. You may need an X-Fix. If you have to do an X-Fix, most hospitals, I think, have some sort of X-Fix you can do. uh, to To that matter, if you have to put them in traction, they'll put them in traction. Antibiotics, for sure. It's an open wound, bones exposed. Antibiotics. Antibiotics. Make sure they get appropriate, adequate antibiotics. If it's massively contaminated, that you need to add JET and Flagyl. Otherwise, just something like Cefazolin will suffice. Don't forget about tetanus. They need a, they need a tetanus shot, for sure. Uh, so don't forget about that. If there's a vascular injury, they probably need an amputation. <coughs> you may know that the day... I know, we have a vascular surgeon here, but that's, he may not do an amputation, but the rest of us, normal humans, would probably need to do an amputation. You may know that at the day that you see that patient, but will the family and the patient be willing to accept it that day? So sometimes you have to wait. So think about the social aspects. There's a lot of stigma about amputations. Plus, at least at bungalow, we didn't have the option of good prostheses. So these people were on crutches the rest, of your, uh, the rest of their lives. So it wasn't the kind of situation, well, we'll do an amputation. Yeah, it's going to be hard for them. They're going to have to increase their caloric intake because they have to use more energy to walk with a prosthesis. It's not quite that simple. We didn't even have prostheses as an option. And when they did have them as an option in the capital city, they couldn't afford them. And if they could, they weren't well made in many cases, not every case. Some of them were good. Uh, so don't just think, well, In in the U.S., we would just amputate. This isn't going to survive, and this is Africa. We just got to do it. It's not quite that simple. You need to talk to the family. You need to prepare them. And if that means a washout and a dead leg is going to sit there, they will figure it out in the next day or two. Let them see the dressing change. Let them see that the the leg is now dead, that it's a lot easier conversation to have to say, we need to do an amputation. They say, yeah, we know it looks looks dead. But if you come out, they come out with a leg that's short, There's going to be a lot of questions, so you have to make that judgment. Are amputations known and accepted in this area or not? If they're not, don't rush into it. Probably the patient's not going to die of sepsis one day later from a dead leg that you didn't didn't take off that day. right? Be patient. It's a lot more work, but be patient. You'll have a better outcome in the long run. Other things to be aware of for lower lower extremity injury, compartment syndrome. Open fractures can still get compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome is a diagnosis of clinical exam. It's not a diagnosis of a number that you stuck a needle in something and saw some sort of pressure. There are some ways to do that. I would tell you that if you don't do that regularly, don't trust that. If you're concerned and you think there might be compartment syndrome, do the fasciotomy. That's, that's as simple as it is. And wounds like that, at least my experience has been, those are well understood and tolerated at Bangalore and probably a lot of places in Africa, um, missing it is worse. So doing it on a few patients that maybe didn't need it is certainly worth it to make sure you did it on the one that did because wounds are just understood. So from a social stigma standpoint, a wound's not a problem. Amputation, yes, but a wound isn't. So don't think of it in the same context that you think of it here in the U.S. People don't. The cosmetic aspect is, is much less important, not because cosmesis isn't important, but, at least my experience in Gabon, they cared a lot less about it than I did. Um, sometimes scars were battle wounds, and they can brag about them. Look, I got this injury. All right. Talk about lyomyomas. Um Very common. If you go to Africa, you're going to see it. If you see any gynecologic patients in the U.S., you're going to see it. What do you do with it? Is it a problem? And usually what happens is Someone presents with a problem and they happen to have uterine lyomyomas. You heard that, right? They present with a problem and they happen to have uterine lyomyomas. It rarely is the cause of the problem that they've presented with. If you're in Gabon, and I think in many other places because ultrasound is so prevalent, they often come with pictures of their lyomyomas on the ultrasound and say, See, look, doctor, I have this problem. And here's the cause. I have lyomyomas. No, that's probably not causing your headaches.
1: <laughs>
0: but it, it, it can be thought that way. Right? People say, oh, I have something wrong. I found it. And I have this problem. Therefore, what I found that's wrong must be causing my problem. So make sure you get a good history. And always ask one more question. Always ask one more question. The majority of women that we saw, they came in with lyomyomas, Their main complaint actually was infertility. It wasn't the it wasn't the urine myomas. They really were coming for infertility, and they thought the myomas were the cause of their infertility, which usually it is not the cause of their infertility. They may come though with actual complaints that could be related to the myomas. Urinary symptoms or symptoms of constipation, large myomas that are in the pelvis, can cause a lot of urinary frequency, urgency, and be very uncomfortable. So that is a situation where you need to ask a few questions because it comes slowly and I think probably is true everywhere. You know, we often stop when we're on a trip for my wife to go to the bathroom. It's rarely for me to go to the bathroom. So that stereotype or that kind of generalization is also true in Africa. Oh, yeah, she's in the bathroom. Yeah, she's in the bathroom. So that kind of idea is just kind of, well, yeah, I'm a woman. Of course, this is how it goes. I've had six kids or whatever. Well, that's not necessarily true. It really could be the myoma. So think about that aspect when you're asking the question. They may have come for infertility, but the, real, the reality is they're having some urinary symptoms that are related to the myomas that are causing some compression of the bladder. So something to consider. Uh, vaginal bleeding, very rarely. They can have a pedunculated myoma. that can, also, can be the cause of uh, vaginal bleeding, so make sure you do a speculum exam. Um, also make sure that you... This is just going to help... But generally, if someone has dysfunctional uterine bleeding, it's not because of their myomas. But that's often the conclusion that is drawn. So resist that temptation to assume that every woman with dysfunctional uterine bleeding is caused by the myomas that they have. It rarely is. Myomas that can do that would be the submucosal myomas. That's it. And making that assessment on an ultrasound, whether they have submucosal myomas or not, it isn't easy. Even if you do it every day, it's not easy. So resist that temptation to say, yes, you have myomas and you have bleeding. This is going to make you better. We're going to do a myomectomy. Not necessarily true. Okay, resist that temptation. A lot of people have myomas and dysfunctional urine. Infertility is, is often the why they've come, but that's not the cause of their... Uh, the myomas are not the cause of that. Maybe if they're having spontaneous abortions at two, three months, that could be related to an issue of myomas. But that's, that's it. If they're just not able to even get pregnant... It's probably not the myomas. Uh, Don't forget to do an exam. Do an ultrasound. Make sure you do an ultrasound. And you may say, oh, I don't do ultrasound. I don't know. Put the ultrasound probe on there and start looking. It doesn't hurt the patient. It doesn't cost you anything. The hospital already has it. Just get the probe and the gel in your hand and do an ultrasound. Makes the patient happy, even if you have no idea what you're looking at. (laughs) Uh, That's not why you should do it, but it does make the patient happy. And as you look, you will get better. You will start to understand and correlate what you've seen on the ultrasound with your physical exam, with what you find in the operating room, you will start to have a better understanding. So do the ultrasound. It will help you to know about, um, about whether the where the myomas are and if it indeed is. You can get confused. You can get uh, taken aback and find a, something different than you expected. Um, you can do some hormonal therapy. Again, I would caution you. Often these are not long-lasting and uh, results in terms of shrinking the myomas, and they're going to they're take some time. So if you have a short trip, you're giving, starting them on hormonal therapy to try to diminish the size of their myomas. It probably just means you're going to delay the inevitable of having an operation. So you have to think about it in your mind. Am I delaying the inevitable, or am I shrinking this so that I can do an easier myomectomy? Or what's the situation that I'm, that I'm involved with here? Make sure that when they're, you're going to the operating room with someone who's having a myomectomy, that if possible, you consent consented them for a hysterectomy. That is really difficult. Um, for better or worse, the majority of the cultural view, at least in Gabon, was that women's value was based on their ability to, to bear children, to get pregnant. Not necessarily bear children, but to get pregnant. And so once you've done that hysterectomy, that's over. So think about that, especially if this is a 25, 26, 27-year-old woman. You may say, you know, I know this myomectomy is going to do nothing for their future, but doing a hysterectomy will do a lot of bad things for their future. Uh, Then they're not marriable anymore in that culture, and that causes a lot of problems. And those of you who are women in the audience, that may be a shock to you, and you may not like to hear me saying that, but I, I see someone who I know has lived in Africa nodding her head. If you'd like to have a woman's perspective on that, she'd be happy to talk with you, I'm sure. But it's a challenge, because it's a, it's a social problem, not just a physical problem. It's, it's a discussion. Uh, but it's an opportunity, also, to talk about what is the real value of a person, a woman. Is it in their ability to bear children? No, oh, it's because Jesus died for them. Right? So you have an, it's an open door to speak about spiritual things. Uh, sometimes you'll get an open reception to that. Other times, you won't. Um, we tended to do most of our myomectomies, through a fan and steel incision. Uh, it, I found that if, there, if the uterus is below the umbilicus, I can do it. Um, you may say, I can't. Okay, and you don't have to. Um, but for me, I could. If it was above the umbilicus, it was better just to do a midline. Uh, you may struggle a little bit through the and steel, but I, I felt like that was a better long-term solution, hernia risk and things like that. Um, you can use a tourniquet. Has anybody used a tourniquet on the uterus when they've done my Yeah. So it, you can take a Foley catheter, wrap it around the infundibulum, uh, pull it tight, put a hemostat on it. What you have to think about is, what's going to happen when you take the tourniquet off? Okay, it's easy to put it on, do the myomectomy and feel really good, and then you take it off and you're like, oh, I didn't think about all the bleeding that's going to happen when I take the tourniquet off. So there's a couple of different ways to approach that. What we would do is put the tourniquet on, do all the myomectomy, uh, myomectomies and then close in layers, each of the sites close in layers, Put some compression on it externally, manually, take off the tourniquet, hold that pressure there for a few minutes, then release that pressure and then take a look and see what continues to explode or expand or get too large from one of your myomectomy sites. If it's spurting blood, then probably you need to put the tourniquet back on and close that. Or if it's just one site, don't put the tourniquet on because you'll be able to see the bleeding site a lot easier without it. Take your sutures out and reclose it. That's difficult because often the tissue is very fragile. But you would rather do that than have the bleeding situation. You guys have anything you want to add to that? No? So I was hoping this would be interactive, but I feel like I'm droning on. And anybody have any
1: comments they want to add? Inject oxytocin around, pitocin around, like, you know, usually I didn't use a tourniquet, but I would inject around myoma, just to be able to cause more and then able to do that a lot better and
0: the That's a great idea. We did not do that. That's why we're having this open kind of open <laughs> forum. Yes, sir. Because
1: it doesn't work nearly as well as vasopressin because okay. vasopressin is much more effective. You need to dilute it. You need to be using more than, less than <coughs> 45 units total. Uh, so usually they say, I always take 20 units and dilute it. 200 cc, so every 10 cc is one unit. It has a fairly short half-life, so yeah, you literally. can't repeat it. Okay. But it really
0: cuts your bleeding. Excellent. You Did everybody hear that? So vasopressin is an option, no more than 45 units. Um, no it's a short... No, four, 425. Four, oh, 425. Yeah, 45 high. Yeah, like it's <laughs> in the usually. Okay. If you really want to s- stay careful,
1: because you, you can get this cardiac arrhythmia as a problem.
0: Depends how good your anesthetist is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So four to five units, no more than that, but you can dilute it out. It has a good impact, as well as the option of injecting oxytocin to cause uh, constriction, uh, constriction as well as contraction of that area. Yeah, Steve.
1: Um, I'd make a recommendation to take four books with you. The Bible, and then Primary Surgery. It's published out of England. It tells you a way to do the operation, leads you through one way to do the operation. It just, when I first moved there, I didn't know how to do that many dysrections. I hadn't done too many general surgery or vascular. Um, But it tells you one way to do it, and then as time goes on, you have more visiting people, and they can teach you more about it. But primary surgery because it tells you how to do your anesthetic, tells you how to do your trauma, and it tells you how to do the bulk of the operations you'll ever do there. So it's just and as a missionary, they gave it to us for free, which is odd for England, but um, I think it's $8 a book, like $24 for the full set. And they have a new edition
0: that's electronic that's yeah, been updated, I, so, and it's, I think, open source. So yeah, it know, is open source. Primary surgery. And I'm, happy, I'm
1: happy to share that with you as well. If you, So print it. You don't, don't assume you have Internet. Right, <laughs> yeah. Or just get it on something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, don't for assume sure. you have
1: power. <laughs> no, that's another. What were the other books you okay. said? No, that's all four of them. It's oh, four editions. Okay. His primary surgery comes in three parts. One's trauma, one's anesthesia, and one's general surgery. So, But general surgery is 1950s general surgery. So right. they tell you to put on an X-Fix. They tell you uh, how to clean up an open fracture that's been opened for them with infection, how to use a Lizaroth rack to straighten the leg, and lengthen it back out to length up. You lost 6 or ten, 10 centimeters out of the center from infection. It's just... It's
0: pretty extensive.
1: Yeah, I put it—I put the Bible as the critical one, but it's, it makes you uh, a little more stable and not quite as much if you like an idiot. Yeah, am so. sure.
0: If you need some more information about that, I'm happy to, to talk with you. A couple other things about myomas. Again, remember, they probably came for infertility, so if you did a surgery getting a hysterosalpingogram either before or after, and don't forget during the surgery to look at the tubes. You can get caught up with uh, a uterus that looks like this and forget that you should assess what the situation is with the tubes, not just the end of the tubes, but also where they are connected to the uterus so that the utero, um, I'm trying to blank on that, that junction, that connection. Um, yeah. Corneal. Thank Corneal you. Cornell junction, thank you. <clears throat> make sure you take a look there as well, because often there's myomas there, and if you put a big closure there, you've now just obstructed the tomb. And just, it's not bad. That if you had to do it, do it, but, uh, if, but if you know you did it, that's important to at least understand that you've done it. So that's it. Um, I think our time's out. I hope this was helpful for you, uh, and we had some interaction. If you have any questions about PACs or about other surgical things, uh, I'm happy to uh, be around and answer some questions. Have a great day, everybody. Blessings to you.